And welcome into another edition of the Stanford Football Insider Show. I'm Nikki Sullivan, joined by Vihan Lachman of KZSU and the Stanford Daily. Vihan, how's Week 5 treating you? It's been busy. Not as bad as Week 4, I think, but I uh, had a midterm this morning. I ran into you, Nikki, right before that mm-hmm. massacre happened. <laughs> but I'm still alive, and I guess I'll count that as a victory, just making it through. And, yeah, we'll see. This has uh, been... You know, quite a tough stretch, not only for us, but for Stanford football. So I figure, you know, if, if they can keep on moving week to week until the next game, so can I. So at, at this point, I think it's just all about, yeah, trudging through the storm. Definitely. You mentioned week four was a little rough for you. And I think that can certainly be said about the Stanford Cardinal, a 10 to 5 loss that somehow wasn't as close as the score suggests. I don't really know how that's possible, but I think the first thing we have to talk about is that there are some changes coming after that game. And first and foremost, it's at the quarterback position. Ryan Burns is out as the starter. Keller Christ is in. We were together when we heard that news. Remind people, like, what was your reaction like when you heard that? Well, after Shaw's press conference after the game Saturday, it kind of, he kind of indicated that a quarterback change was in the cards because he said, we're not getting what we need out of the quarterback play. I'm not going to address specifics, but we're going to have a conversation as a staff. And when you say those words, it becomes very clear that you're talking about maybe making a change. So when the news happened, my reaction was not more shocked that they did it, but more of surprised that they pulled the trigger and Shaw was as as open about the change as he was. Typically, you know, Stanford loves masking their depth chart. They love not disclosing who's going to play where. But Shaw was very upfront. He said, Keller will be our starter. Ryan will back him up and be ready. But so he killed the idea of quarterback rotation. He's just saying, we need to make a change, and this is what we're going to do at this time. I know you and I talked about the fact that it was a little bit surprising that Keller Chris goes from not throwing a pass against Colorado when, with the way Ryan Burns was struggling, you thought maybe they could put him in there and run a series or two like he had done in previous games since they really weren't getting anything out of the first-team offense at that point. But So he goes from not throwing a pass to now being the unquestioned number one guy who is going to try to carry this team through the full game. So that sort of switch surprised me a little bit. I I knew they were going to make a change, but honestly, I thought... KJ Costello might be more likely than Keller Chris based on what we had seen on Saturday. But you made a good point, Nikki, when we were talking that maybe we shouldn't read too much into what Chris' role was on that Saturday because his role might have been defined in that way for a reason. Yeah, and I think that kind of hit at what some of like the problems that I think a lot of Stanford fans had with the way David Shaw had handled the quarterback situation. He said, okay, we're going to give them both playing time. But for one thing, Chris never really seemed to have a chance. He kind of got one drive a game, and that was it, outside of the end of the Washington State game when he got a little more. But it didn't seem like any type of even split or that anything he did would really earn him more time. And you can imagine it would just sap his confidence. And I think the other thing was he didn't have a set thing that he was doing. He was kind of going in and running the exact same offense as Ryan Burns. He just didn't really have many opportunities, which I think felt weird to people. I think when we see two quarterbacks playing at the same time, it's pretty rare, but it's usually more of they're getting equal playing time and the team is really trying to figure out which one it wanted or each quarterback is doing a different thing. You've got like a Tebow package or something that you know, maybe Keller Chris would run that and he would run the option. And that's kind of what he ended up doing against Colorado on Saturday. He was the option quarterback. He was going to run it most of the time. Didn't work out very well for the most part, but at least he had kind of a, a set role. So I think that's probably where that was my hypothesis to what Shaw was trying to do with that. And that's why he didn't throw. But it is still a little surprising that you go from not throwing a pass in a game where you needed offense, even just a smidgen of offense, to straight into the flames as the starting quarterback. Yeah, if this announcement means anything, I think you can read into the fact that it means that it wasn't that the coaching staff didn't trust, or it wasn't that they were scared of Keller Kish throwing the ball. It was more of they had committed to using him in that way, as you pointed out. I think that's the best interpretation. Otherwise, you're in the position of, defending yourself saying they went from on Saturday scared of him throwing the football to now handing him the keys to this engine so I think that's the I think storyline that makes the most sense up to this point which is that they were trying to just give Keller a predefined role as you said very well Nikki and now he's got one heck of a predefined role (laughs) that being everything and you got a feel for Ryan Burns, too, in the situation. Shaw alluded to this, too, in his Tuesday press conference when he made the announcement. He said, 
there is a lot of stuff broken with this offense, not just the quarterback, but that's where they make the change. It's not all on Ryan Burns. In fact, when Stanford lost you know, at Washington and against Washington State, I thought Burns was all right in those games. He wasn't the problem. He wasn't the reason they lost. When you look, and when you look at games where Burns got great protection and the running game was firing on all cylinders, like Kansas State, for example. Remember when he started 10 for 10 against Kansas State? When he had time and when he was in a rhythm, when he was confident, he was doing his job in this offense. But the problem is when the wheels started to come a little loose, they came a little loose for him as well. And that's why you got to make the change. It's it's tough to be in that position at quarterback where that's the one position where you don't have rotation. You know, defensive line, someone will come in and take a few reps for you and there's not really a controversy, but a quarterback, it's really one guy you want, for the most part, out there finishing it. So this move, in some sense, it just feels like Stanford's got so much going wrong on offense, they're just trying to get a spark. And if you're David Shaw, you're thinking, what can I do to change things up? I could try to change my socks. I could grow a beard, maybe. <laughs> but that's not going to have as much of an impact as maybe changing the guy under center. So in that sense, I think this almost feels like a a move of let's just try something new and see what happens. But you've got to understand where they're coming from is, you know, what did Einstein say? Doing the same thing over and over and respect, expecting different results is insanity. So now they're they're trying something different. And this is Keller Chris shot. If he can play well and he's got a stretch of defenses coming up, assuming he holds on to the job where he's got Arizona, Oregon, State, Oregon, those are teams where you expect to put up points. And if he can lead this offense back to, where their talent level indicates they should be performing, then he could cement himself as the starter next year, too. So a lot to play for if you're Keller Chris. Yeah, it's certainly a different slate that you're going against. I mean, Ryan Burns in there for, like, K-State, USC, then Washington, Washington State. UCLA, too. UCLA. Not too shabby. Notre Dame is definitely an easy one that he didn't capitalize on as much as people would have liked, but it's hard to overstate how much Cal and Oregon especially have struggled this year. They're two of the bottom four teams in scoring defense. Oregon State isn't that much higher and Arizona isn't either, but and I think you made a good point. This is not all Ryan Burns' fault by any means. I mean, to me, he kind of kind of accentuated the offense that was there. If things were going well, he could absolutely take you up a couple levels. When things are going bad, he just couldn't pull you forward. And he certainly looked fine, I agree, against Washington, Washington State. But that performance against Colorado was tough to watch. I mean, we just saw all the bad signs that we had seen. We saw the happy feet. We saw the not really going through the wreaths. We saw the bad throws on deep balls. We saw the ball security issues that are have been a huge problem for Ryan Burns. Fumbled snap, yeah. The fumbled snap was critical. Uh, he lost another fumble on what ended up being that infamous fourth and 45 where the Stanford crowd was booing the entire Stanford offense. And then he had that weird one where he tried to tuck the ball and drop the ball, caught it in midair, and then ran for like two yards. Yeah, that yeah. <laughs> just, it, it kind of began to, that was kind of, I think, the worst possible game. So it makes sense that they switched. But there's definitely a lot more going on with this Stanford offense. And one of those places is on the offensive line. That's been a problem for different at different times of the year. It's been accentuated more and more. I thought it was okay against Colorado, not great. But now Stanford hears that both David Bright and Johnny Caspers are pretty much questionable for this game. Bright may be a little more likely to play than Caspers. He's looking closer to questionable slash probable. Caspers, for now, the last we heard is he's pretty much true 50-50. We'll see if he plays. How big an impact do you think that's going to have if Caspers doesn't play on this Stanford offensive line? It's going to be big. Caspers is a fifth-year senior. He's a three-year starter. He's a team captain this year. But if you watch the film, he's had his own fair share of struggles, too, this season, which is a bit surprising. Caspers was—he and Tucker were the two holdovers from last year's dominant offensive line, which was probably number one or number two in the nation. This season, you expected you know right guard not to be a problem. Caspers has his lockdown, but— he, like everybody else, has has struggled too. That being said, you want him out there. There is no doubt about it. He is a fixture. He knows what needs to get done, and he's executed it so many times at a high level. And the fact that Caspers is questionable for this game means that Stanford, for really the fifth game in a row, is going to be trotting out a different offensive line combination. They were consistent the first two games. Kansas State, USC, they had the same five. And then UCLA, they switched the tackles. Okay, that's a different combination, but you still have the same five guys. And then 
Washington, they kept the same combination, but that's when the injuries started piling up. They lost Tucker in that game, and then they lost Bright in the next one. And now you're in a position where Caspers could be out too. So now you're running really thin on guards because Bright could be out, Caspers could be out. That means Nick Wilson maybe in there at guard. So Nate Herbig maybe Nate, in Nate, there. Nate Herbig as well has really been impressive. That's one of the, the bright spots for the offensive line last few weeks is his emergence. So probably between one of those two guys if they were to sub in for Caspers, you know, life would life would go on, the offense would continue playing, but it's it's a loss. There's no doubt about it. He is somebody who is so consistent and reliable even if he's not had his best season just like everyone else on this offensive line. That's been another huge problem with Stanford this season is just the injuries have piled up and su- such inopportune moments just hasn't allowed especially on the line that ability to gel. We talk so much about gelling, go back to 2014 and those issues. Well, back then it was the same group of five guys all season long and they, you know, took those seven or eight weeks to get together and by the end they were dominant. Now, this group, you can argue, hasn't had that same sort of luxury because they're switching positions, they're making up for injuries, they just haven't played together in the same spots all season long and that just makes the task even harder of being a cohesive offensive line in the system. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned the injuries. I mean, I think part of that just goes back to last year. This team was ridiculously healthy. I mean, Daniel Marks on offense, he lost to the left leg injury that he suffered against Cal. Other than that, pretty much everyone stayed healthy on the offense for the entire year. And defensively, you lose Harrison Phillips at the beginning of the season. But despite a number of scares, everyone else pretty much stayed healthy for the entire season. Stanford had a lot of luck last year. That has not been the case this year. And that's the other news that we should touch on coming out of the press conference Tuesday is that Elijah Holder is out for the year with that shoulder injury that he suffered a couple weeks ago against UCLA. He finally was able to come back last weekend's Colorado, but he re-injured it trying to make a tackle and now is done for the year, which is a big blow to this Stanford secondary that has held its own without Holder and without Quentin Meeks, who came back a couple weeks ago, but certainly could really, really use both of them out there. I feel so sad for Elijah, too. He had really come into his own the beginning of the season. He locked down Juju Smith-Schuster and Byron Pringle first two games of the season. He was looking great. And then when you pair him with Quentin Meeks, who is just as good, if not better, potentially as a shutdown corner, those were two guys who you can ride Go back to Colorado game. Stanford had relied so much on press coverage in that game after, you know, playing so much bend but don't break before then. That's because they trusted both Holder and Meeks out there one-on-one in man coverage to get the job done. It's just you feel for Elijah, too. I remember talking to him before the season. He was I asked him, do you feel any pressure now that you're kind of the number one guy with Ronnie Harris guy? And he he took a deep breath and he said, you know, I, I do feel the pressure. This is something I think about a lot is holding up that standard. So, you know, he had a lot of high expectations for himself, and it's unfortunate that his season has to end this way. I doubt that the Stanford training staff and the medical team would throw him out there before he was ready, but Shaw did acknowledge that we just can't seem to get him healthy in this position. We worked really hard on getting him back on the field, and then he re-injured it almost immediately. So the shutting down move, I think, makes sense from a precautionary standpoint. They're worried that if they try to get him back again this season, a similar sort of thing might happen. So they just want to give him the long course to to improve and get better so he'll be back next year hopefully 100 percent in full force he should be ready by spring practice they said so no more elijah holder this season but if he's healthy next season future definitely looks bright for for him and meeks coming back next year yeah it's a stanford defense that certainly held up its end of the bargain against colorado i mean the offense putting up three points the defense technically scoring two points on the safety <laughs> although Despite the other two safeties, I think you can at least credit them with a little bit. This third one, probably not as much their fault. That was some mm. actually pretty brilliant strategy, I think, by Mike McIntyre on the Colorado side. But they also held an explosive Colorado offense to only 10 points. This was a Colorado team that came in averaging just shy of 40 points a game. They did get a little help with some uh, field goal struggles by the Colorado kicking unit as their kicker missed two and then their punter missed a field goal as well. And that's kind of what Stanford has done. They bended but didn't break in the red zone and then got some help. What did you see from this Stanford defense that was able to just shut down a Colorado offense that had been so dynamic coming into the game? Yeah, like you said, it wasn't as dominant of a defensive performance as the score indicated. They gave up over 200 yards rushing. 
Colorado had so much success running the option, and they moved the ball so well on the ground, especially. Phillip Lindsay had a fantastic day. I think he averaged close to 11 yards per carry. So it wasn't perfect by any means. They were aided a lot by those missed field goals. But the thing is, Shaw said this too, the defense held their own in the red zone and put Colorado in a position where they had to kick field goals, and then they missed them. So they did their job in that sense of preventing touchdowns. Up front, they have really come into their own. Solomon Thomas, once again, dominating. He might be one of the premier defensive players in the country, certainly on this team. I think it's fair to say now that he is the best player on this whole football team besides Christian McCaffrey, I think, in terms of talent and production, what he's been able to do. And the return of Elijah Holder and Quentin Meeks, as brief as it was, unfortunately, they looked good when they were together. I think the defense schematically also with what Lance Anderson provided out there, dialing up a lot of different blitzes and keeping Colorado guessing, a lot of it worked really well. I didn't think there was any sort of chance we would see this mighty Colorado offense held to just 10 points. Part of it was luck, but also Stanford did a nice job of getting off the field at opportune times, forcing Colorado to kick those field goals, which they happened to miss. And despite all of the dreadful stuff that happened offensively with being unable to find the end zone, Stanford was still in a position to win that game until the very last play. And that's a testament to what they were able to do defensively. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other thing to keep in mind that I think interested me was the times when Stanford especially struggled against the run was two instances when at the start of drives, they put backup defensive linemen in there. They took Solomon Thomas off the field. They took Harrison Phillips off the field to get them a breather. And I think one time it was Eric Cotton and Dylan Jackson. The other time it might have been Jordan Watkins and Dylan Jackson. And they just got gashed. And Colorado runs that hurry up so well that they don't have to substitute anyone. That means Stanford can't put Thomas or Phillips back out on the field. And Colorado would just line up, run for 10 yards, run for 10 yards, run for 10 yards. So I agree that Stanford did struggle a little bit against the run. But I think some of that was also just when they, when they had to put those backup defensive linemen in there. They really struggled, and that speaks in part to just the lack of depth on that defensive line for Stanford. A lot of the guys they were hoping would really develop, Dylan Jackson, Luke Kamatule, Eric Cotton, Jordan Watkins as well, just they haven't really found a guy who they feel comfortable putting as a third down lineman consistently with Thomas and Phillips. And so that, that should be counted against the defense as a whole because those two guys just can't play the entire game. That's just not going to happen. But at the same time, the, I think the talent on this te- defense's number one unit is, can almost match up with anyone in the country. I mean, yeah. especially if you had Elijah Holder ready. and Him and Quentin Meeks are both shut down corners. The safeties have been at least solid. The linebackers have had mixed performances, but that defensive front with Thomas and Phillips has been excellent in this game. Those two combined for three tackles for loss, a couple of sacks, 12 tackles on top of that. They, they were just dominant up front, and that makes it tough for the other team to score. And... They're going to have an interesting matchup this week, which we can get to in a little bit farther down the line. But an Arizona team that could be an interesting challenge for them and a, a problem, given what the type of defenses, the type of offenses that Stanford has struggled against this year. Yeah, you want you want to talk about injuries? Arizona, they have been bludgeoned with the injury bug. They've got some questions at quarterback. When New Solomon is back this week practicing, and then Nick Wilson, their star running back, is out. So. You want to talk about injuries. Stanford We Stanford has very legitimate gripes, but Arizona kind of laughs at your injury concerns with what they've had to deal with so far this season. Yeah, Arizona, it seems like, is that like three years in a row now that they've had just massive injuries? That they There's certainly not going to be any sympathy there for Stanford. They're going to say, yeah, we feel you guys, believe me. <laughs> Let's just spend a little more time talking about that Colorado game and about the return of Christian McCaffrey. He obviously sat out against Notre Dame. Just banged up, David Shaw says, was back for the Colorado game. Looked decent, but didn't quite look like McCaffrey for the most part. Picked up 92 yards on 21 carries and had a couple of catches as well. One one of those catches especially, I think, was very dynamic. The one that he took for 26 yards, and that was kind of the McCaffrey that you were used to seeing, juking in space, getting by defenders. Did he look just a little bit off to you, though? There was no question he was not 100% healthy. Part of it is that Colorado's front is very talented. Stanford's had their blocking struggles. That's where they really miss Daniel Marks, too, is blocking in the running game. So that contributed to it also. But I just think McCaffrey did not really show us full Christian McCaffrey because there was no way he was at full health. And then he was still, you know, asked to go out there 
and carry the ball 20 times. So that's a, that's a lot to ask for for a guy who's still working through you know, the injuries that kept him out against Notre Dame to once again assume that lion's share of the workload that he did. Stanford tried to lighten, lighten it a little bit. They had Terrence Alexander returning kickoffs, which took a lot of us by surprise. That was not <laughs> a name we had heard being thrown around for that for those responsibilities. It, w- it was definitely something that held Stanford back a little bit. We've, we've, we ran the... We ran through all the injuries Stanford's dealing with. That's another one that's a big deal. When your best player, maybe the best player in the country, is not operating 100%, and who knows how long he's been suboptimal this season. He's been dealing with some stuff for a while, I'm guessing, and it just took that Washington State game for it to reach a, a boiling point where he couldn't even go on with it. So that's that's not helping your offense either when McCaffrey isn't operating at full speed and I think that certainly showed as you said Nikki there were there were some plays that he showed flashes of his greatness but the fact that he wasn't able to do everything we're accustomed to see him doing I think suggests that he wasn't 100% by any means and based on that were you surprised that we didn't see more Bryce Love I mean Bryce Love coming off a game where he rushed for 120 yards a career high looked very good as the feature back against Notre Dame and he ends up getting three carries in this one yeah that was that that's a mistake on the coaching staff, I think, and Shaw acknowledged it after the game. He didn't. He didn't so much as say it was a mistake. We didn't give Bryce Love more carries. What he said was, "It's we need to do a better job of getting all of our talented playmakers the ball." And specifically, he said the issue was that they did not do a good enough job getting first downs. And if the offense is going to go three and out, that means you only have three offensive plays you run per series, right? You're going to hand it off to McCaffrey once, and then all of a sudden you have at most one or two plays to spread it out to Trent Irwin and Michael Rector and Bryce Love. So that's what Shaw pegged it on. He said they just did not run enough plays for them to get to enough Bryce Love touches. I don't know if that's going to be a valid excuse going forward. I think you need to find a way of getting Bryce Love involved. A lot of fans, I know on Twitter especially, have been clamoring for more McCaffrey-Love formations where they're both out there on the field together. That's certainly something... I'm sure the coaching staff has discussed too. We can't pretend like it's all just fun and games and just amazing when you put those two out there, right? Because you lose a blocker in that case, you you trade off some things, but I am of the opinion that the fact that that the that McCaffrey Love dual backfield worked so well against USC leading to that touchdown and then it kind of disappeared off the face of the earth after that was is kind of curious to me and I'm not fully sure why Stanford move so aggressively away from it so my conspiracy theory about this is that this all comes down to daniel marks and daniel marks not playing on this team i still don't think stanford trusts its fullbacks like it trusts daniel mark which is understandable he's one of the top five top three fullbacks in the country i would argue top one but that's just me (laughs) i would absolutely accept that argument with very little persuasion i i honestly don't know very much about the rest of the fullbacks in the country which is personally why I wouldn't go that far, but I I think he's got to be up there. And I think Stanford understandably sees a drop-off there. And they, I think they like when Daniel Marks is that extra blocker. He is so smart. He knows where the rush is coming from. He's able to pick it up so consistently that I think when he goes down against UCLA, that's maybe it's coincidence that that kind of coincides with just that decrease of McLovin out on the field. But when you're losing an extra blocker, then having Daniel Marks out there almost negates that. He almost counts as like one and a half blockers just because of what he can do. And so it, I think they're a little hesitant to put McCaffrey and Love out there, especially because Ryan Burns had been getting just shellacked at quarterback. He was just getting so much pressure that they didn't want to put Chris Harrell or Reagan Williams out there as the fullback, who are both guys still developing the game. Williams, obviously, just a redshirt freshman, and Harrell, a guy who walked on and converted from tight end. It's guys that aren't natural fullbacks who have played in the Stanford system for a while. So I think maybe there's just not a ton of confidence in that, but I agree. You've got to find a way to get those guys out there at least a couple of times a game and try something out, even if it's just a quick pass. And it also seems like the ways they're using Bryce Love is very predictable. I think every single one of his catches has been a screen pass, which, yeah, that's a great play to run with Bryce Love every now and then. But if you just line him up wide and just throw him a screen pass, throw him a screen pass, throw him a screen pass, defenses are eventually going to be able to figure that out. He's not going to be able to take it 93 yards every single time and break a bunch of tackles. That's just not going to happen. So I'd love to see them try and mix it up with him at least a little bit. 
Yeah, you bring up an interesting point, too, that I think we should touch on on the predictability of the Stanford offense. The Colorado players after the game, they talked very openly, like alarmingly openly, about how they knew what play Stanford was was running based on formation, based on the situation in the game, on Ryan Burns' third interception that essentially sealed that game. Uh, Chidobe Awuzie said, for example, Awuzie said that, we knew what we were running. I, I told my guys on the, in the secondary, this is the play they're running, and Brian Burns threw it exactly to the spot they were expecting it. That's a really curious development for uh, from my perspective, too, thinking about what the Stanford offensive philosophy is built on. It's no surprise if you watch the games. I think if you and I, we've seen every snap so far. We can kind of guess what's coming. But that's not what really Stanford's mentality is built on. I remember Shaw gave an interview in 2013 with Sports Illustrated where he talked about one of the biggest lessons he learned from his time at the Raiders under John Gruden was this idea that you want to be able to confuse defenses by throwing out different formations and but running the same basic packages, that same basic plays that you've installed on day one. So even though they don't know what's coming, you feel very comfortable running a play you've practiced over and over. So from then, it sounded very much like his whole philosophy was based on confusing defenses based on not knowing what's coming. And Stanford is in the opposite boat right now where it seems like everything they do offensively is just very, very easy to pick up on. Part of that might be the fact that they're shorthanded so they can't really open up everything as much as they like. I think that was one of the very underrated parts of the Greg Tabuata injury that not a lot of people t- touched on, which is the fact that Stanford did not have another tight end besides Dalton Schultz. They trusted another pass-catching tight end. Nate Herbig, as much as I love him, doesn't count for this <laughs> discussion. And since they only had one tight end, that just threw away all the two tight end sets. And now you're trying to run an offense that's complicated, that runs so many different formations, and now you're just limiting that and still trying to keep defenses guessing. It's it's a it's a tough task indeed. And the other thing that makes me wonder is it would be probably hard to tell if this had been a bit of a problem going back a couple of years because especially last year, other defenses could have known exactly what Stanford could do and often did when they would put that power formation out there and it didn't matter because Stanford just was so talented along the line and at the skill positions they could run the ball down your throat and obviously there was still unpredictability in that offense and you saw the just the dynamics of that offense last year the dynamism that they had was different than kind of that straight up power and it took Iowa by surprise in the Rose Bowl that's for sure they were talking we just need to stop Stanford in the run first play they couldn't stop Christian McCaffrey on a pass play and suddenly they're down seven nothing but you have to wonder if maybe that had been a, a small issue going back and it just got totally blown up this year and that that was where the problem really came out for this Stanford offense that just hasn't done it this season so far. 11 trips to the red zone this year. That is dead last in the FBS. They are fifth worst in terms of converting those trips into touchdowns. They have had to attempt a field goal on, I believe, four of those trips and four of the 11 times they've made it in, they've had to kick a field goal. That's fifth highest. They just aren't converting when they're in the red zone. They aren't getting to the red zone. Everything that can go wrong for this offense has gone wrong so far. Yeah, this offense, they really need to look in the in the mirror and think of and it, and they are. I'm not saying that they're not doing this, but there's this is a time where self-reflection about what your identity is, how you run things, this really comes to the light. In David Shaw's tenure, Stanford has had two elite offenses, in my opinion. 2011, Andrew Luck's last year, and then last season, which was Kevin Hogan's last year. Both those years, Stanford was one of the top teams in the nation in red zone efficiency. They averaged over 30 points a game. I think in Andrew Luck's final season, they averaged over 40 points a game, something like that. But the common denominator in both of those seasons was just outstanding quarterback play from two guys who are now in the NFL. We can say that now. It's starting in the NFL, I guess, and solid offensive line play, but overall just consistency at quarterback, I think, at a very high level. And that's something that you may not be able to bank on year in and year out. How many times do you get an Andrew Luck or a Kevin Hogan? Not very often. More often than not, you have to work with somebody not quite at that level, it seems like. So if your Stanford is what you're doing offensively in terms of having a NFL playbook, really, and running all these different packages and having all this personnel that is responsible for a lot and putting so much on your quarterback pre-snap, post-snap, running the ball, throwing the ball, everything. 
is it is this something that's sustainable or is it does it only really work when you have a quarterback who can handle that kind of load so because Kevin Hogan's first three years as a starter, the offense wasn't phenomenal in terms of putting up points. They really relied on great defenses, and then but they were able to get the job done better than what we've seen so far this season. But then Hogan's last year really clicked for the team last season. So we'll see. I I don't think Stanford's going to completely change what they do overnight, but I'm sure they're having those kind of conversations too about what can we do to win football games because they've recruited so well and you wouldn't know that by the way they're playing right now so with just the talent they have on this offense they should be doing better and I don't know if there's an easy fix or if it's a more systemic thing but that's what's that's what's got to be the conversation right now because what what's happening now is just not working for obvious reasons yeah, I think the playbook question is a huge one. I just keep going back to that conversation you and I had with Josh Nunez, who had been the quarterback kind of right before Kevin Hogan, and how he compared learning the playbook to learning a new language. And just maybe it is too complicated. Maybe it's too much. And the other point, you mentioned that the times where Stanford had an elite offenses were in the last years for Andrew Luck and Kevin Hogan. It took all that time, even in Hogan's fourth year, or his, you know, his, his third year as kind of the starting quarterback for the not entire full year, I guess it was his second and a half year as the starting quarterback. But even at that point, he still hadn't quite mastered the playbook enough that Stanford felt free to let him loose. And I mean, you're talking about in Ryan Burns, a guy who's been on campus for four years. This is his fourth year on the team. Keller Christ has been here for three years now. And if they're not learning the playbook to this point, to the point that they can really take advantage of it by now, at some point, you've got to wonder if maybe you simplify the playbook, especially because David Shaw, you know, what you just mentioned, you talked about what John Gruden told him, like, run the same general plays, but keep it unpredictable. Why do they need this playbook to be this complex? And obviously, it's a lot of reads and a lot of making sure that you get into the right play. But at some point, you got to think that maybe the playbook just needs to be simplified a little bit. Yeah, when I, I talked to offensive coordinator Mike Bloomgren back in practice when I wrote that piece about the offensive line. And since I wrote that piece, we have not had the same offensive line combination out there from a week-to-week situation, which has been which has been interesting. But one thing he said was that when he, he used to be with the New York Jets, and he said that we used to have eight-hour days and we would go through all this stuff in the NFL playbook, and he says, we feel totally comf- comfortable giving our guys – that same amount of material except we only get them for four hours a day by NCAA rules instead of eight hour days we get in the NFL and that's really interesting he said that you know boasting about his guys and certainly they're all super intelligent and they've been able to get this far with that volume of information but also if you if you take a step back and think about it what are they doing exactly they are feeding uh, these players eight hours worth of stuff that takes NFL guys eight hours a day to digest in half that time. So you wonder you wonder if it's too much. I'm personally, uh, I think, partially of that opinion because you see the penalties, you see the miscues. It seems like there's a lot you got to manage and things go wrong. But I don't think that's the number one problem, I think, because it's certainly part of it. But I think a bigger issue is just Stanford's got to figure out how they can develop an offensive attack that gets their the ball into the hands of their playmakers more often. It just seems like right now things just stagnate and you have Trent Irwin, Michael Rector, and Bryce Love that finish a game not really having a chance to make their full impact, and that's that's a problem. Yeah, I totally agree. And the other thing to think about, they're getting it in half the time, and they also have an entire other set of stuff they're learning because they're in school as well. <laughs> NFL players, this is their only focus. So Stanford players have split the time between school and between that, and it does kind of befuddle me a little bit. And I agree. This is by far not the biggest problem against Stanford. I mean, there's still execution. Stanford Stanford was able to execute fine last year with this playbook, and they didn't have a problem with it. We weren't complaining about the playbook then. We're complaining about it now because the offense isn't working. Right. That's, that's such a good point in this discussion, too, is when things go south, we talk about complexity of the playbook as a problem. When things go well, we say, look at Stanford, you know, beating all these guys by having a more advanced offense. It's very much, I think, a point of conversation that flips both ways based on how the team is doing right now. And right now, it seems to be more in the south direction. But yeah, that's another interesting point, too, that RJ Abadia and I were talking about after the game. I'm sure he's going to bring this up on the KZSU pregame show from the field 
in in Tucson, Arizona. We have an update on that too that I'll get to when I tell my story. As you think you're about your hot take. Oh, later excellent, on. excellent. Oh, I have not thought about that now that you mention it. But <laughs> but RJ said, think about the fact that Stanford has two guys on their coaching staff that are essentially performing the roles of four people on most teams. You have Bloomgren, who is offensive coordinator, offensive line coach, and then you have Tavita Pritchard, who is quarterbacks coach and wide receivers coach. That's typically, and on top of the recruiting responsibilities, which is extensive, that's a lot on the plates of those two guys. So he thinks that, RJ that is, thinks that part of this discussion that the offensive staff is having right now, where they're looking in the mirror and saying, all right, we need to do something different, part of it might be reassessing whether they're doing the right thing in putting this load on their coaches too. So that could be something to think about. You wonder, Stanford, with the complexity, the last thing I'll throw out there about this point is they've struggled so much getting plays in. You know, They take more delays of game than just about any other team I've seen. And part of that might be the fact that they've got this coaching coaching staff that's scrambling with responsibilities on game day all over the place. Maybe that's an issue. And also just might be the sheer fact that they are communicating another language out there on the field, and some things might get lost in translation and leave and leave things open to confusion. So that's been that's been a problem too. But again, when things go well, when Kevin Hogan ran this offense last season, you saw very little of that. So it's it's hard to say how much of a problem that is. But if it if the if it's as simple as Stanford just needs the perfect quarterback to get the job done, then that's not sustainable for the future. Stanford could go another 20 years without another Andrew Luck or Kevin Hogan. And the fact that they got two of those really best-in-program history-type talents back-to-back almost might have spoiled them a little bit in thinking about these making these changes sooner. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I think all those points are, are very good. we got probably about 15 minutes left, so let's move on to this matchup with Arizona. And it's easy to look at Arizona's schedule and just the teams that they've played over the past couple of weeks and be like, oh, wow, Stanford should walk over this team. Ever since kind of that close overtime loss that we were following closely uh, when Arizona fell to Washington, that was the week that Stanford played against UCLA, an overtime game in Arizona. Um, they have just gotten demolished. They lost to UCLA by 20 points, lost to Utah by 13, and then two weeks ago they were on a bye last week, just got demolished by USC. Sam Darnold threw for five touchdowns. They lost 48-14. to It looks like it should be a walkover, but as you alluded to earlier, this is not the same team because this bye week has come at a great time for them. They are getting healthy. Still, the running back department is, there's a lot of questions there. Samaje Grant, who's kind of a wide receiver, will probably be their starting running back, but at quarterback, it will not be the true freshman Khalil Tate or backup third-string tight end Matt Morin playing quarterback. It's going to be some combination of Brandon Dawkins, who's coming back from a concussion, and Anu Solomon, who's coming back from a knee injury. And that could be a problem for Stanford. I mean, these are both very talented guys who run semi-similar stuff. They can both run the option. They're both very good athletes. How much does this change this Arizona offense that Stanford's going to have to take on? Well, we know Rich Rodriguez is an offensive mastermind. He can do wonders. And when he has healthy personnel, that just opens up his options so much more. He's been really running his offense with two hands tied behind his back without the personnel that he's recruited and he's worked with all offseason. Now that they're getting healthier, especially at the quarterback position, I think you can expect Arizona to return to their lethal self and really be in a position to put up points. I like the Stanford defense in this matchup with that being said for the fact that they're kind of in their own groove too right now. But Arizona, with the health on their with the with their healthier offense aside, can definitely make things interesting. And you know that they're very much hungry for that first win in conference play. They're 0-4 right now. Coming off that bye week, they've had that opportunity to get healthier, reassess where they are. I think Arizona's going to come out there fresh, motivated, and with the scheme that they run. If they have the right quarterback back there, they can certainly do some damage. Not having Nick Wilson, obviously, will hurt a lot. They're still playing, maybe not with two hands tied behind their back, but one. But they're they're in a position where they can play a lot better than they have the last couple of weeks. Like you said, Nikki, you can't put too much stock into that. This will be a very different team with getting those guys back. 
Yeah, and I think the one thing that stands out to me that Stanford has had a problem with option offenses. You mentioned it against Colorado. Sefau Lufa was able to run the option with a fair amount of success. If you take away the sack yardage that he lost, he ran for 70 yards, and that's, that's a good total. And that's a problem that Stanford has seen time and time again over the past couple of years. Well, Brandon Dawkins and Anu Solomon can both certainly do that. Dawkins is uh, Arizona's leading rusher so far this season. Part of that does come back to that injury uh, that... Uh, Nick Wilson suffered, but I mean, against Washington, we saw is a very good defense. Brandon Dawkins rushed for 176 yards on 13 carries. He averaged 14 Whoa. yards of carries, and you remember that Washington defense. That was a Washington defense that I'm not sure Stanford put up 176 yards against the entire game. That's what it felt like on offense, at least. Yeah, <laughs> it was the lowest lowest yardage output in Shaw's tenure, if I'm not mistaken. So this is a guy that when he's healthy, which he appears to be now, he's going to be able to run the ball a little bit. And that has to be where Stanford steps up. You mentioned that was where they struggled against Colorado was in run defense. The past events shut down Lufau, who also seemed to just have an off day and miss some throws. But Dawkins hasn't proven to be a great passer. He hasn't really looked like he can light up a defense through the air. So for me, on defense for Stanford, this game starts and ends with the ground game. Yeah, and that's something I'm sure they're going to spend a lot of time in practice this week working on is cleaning that up. Colorado put a lot of those struggles on tape, and you know Arizona is seeing that, and they're going to try to capitalize on those same sort of plays because they do they do run some similar stuff schematically. To your larger point of Stanford struggling against option attacks and running quarterbacks, that's been very true, a very prominent pattern in the last two or three seasons. The one game where Stanford did have some success against a running quarterback was against Arizona last season where they went up against Gerard Randall but that you can't really read too much in that one because Randall was not much of a threat at all throwing the ball and that was a very one-dimensional Arizona offense and Stanford feasted on that not to mention the offense was clicking you want to talk about good offense <laughs> go back to that Arizona game last year and that put the Wildcats in a position where they couldn't even run their rushing stuff because they had to play catch-up all game that could be something that could help Stanford too in this one if the offense it's a big if but if they can get out in front and make Arizona throw the ball a little bit more than they'd like that can help your defense too but that conversation might be a bit premature I think the narrative of this game is very much going to be the Stanford defense holding on and can the offense get anything going to to return the favor it seems like these time teams are kind of similar right now and that if they can establish the run, they can put some points on the board potentially. Stanford has shown it earlier in the season against Kansas State and USC. Arizona has shown it at times as well against Washington, a very good defense. I mean, they put up 28 points. That's a good number. They were able to run the ball. If they can't, though, both of these offenses really start to struggle a lot more. And the I think the other difference is obviously why Arizona is 2-5 and five and Stanford is 4-3 and three is the defense. Arizona's defense has just struggled for most of the year they've dealt with some injuries not as much as the offense but there's just not that much talent on this defense and for the most part they've struggled on the ground they're coming off a game to usc in which they gave up 320 yards on the ground and over seven yards of carry they gave up over 300 yards on the ground to washington they gave up 200 plus to utah so this is a team that has gotten gashed on the ground the past couple weeks and a fair amount this season what do you think about the matchup for this Stanford offense? I mean, you kind of mentioned that your your inclination is that it's going to be more of a strong game by the defense. Offense holds on. Do you think there's any hope for Stanford to break out on offense? Or is that done for the season? I think there's hope. Again, with the talent Stanford has offensively, there's always going to be hope, right? It's just a question of can they get all their ducks in a row? Can they move the ball downfield? I think in this matchup, it's it's tough to know which Arizona defense you're going to get, right? Are you going to get the defense that has been the only one to date that has kept Washington under 40 points? And they did they had and they had to deal with Washington overtime too. On top of that, so in extra football, they kept them under 40 points. But last or last game they played, which was two weeks ago against USC, they gave up 48 points. Sam Darnold ran wild, as you mentioned, both through the air and with his legs. So. It's hard to it's hard to gauge exactly which Arizona defense is going to show up. I will say that if this defense can generate turnovers, which has been the big issue for them this season, I talked to some Arizona beat writers for, for the daily for a daily piece this week, and they talked about the importance of if Arizona generates turnovers, they win games. And that's what it's going to boil down to. I think Stanford's got 
that new quarterback in there in Keller Christ we talked about. If Christ has one weakness we can identify up to this point, it might be the fact that he seems a bit more turnover prone than Burns. He, I think, has a bit more of a tendency to push the ball downfield, take some chances. Burns, say what you want, up until that Colorado game, he was very careful with the football and not taking too many chances downfield. That could be one interesting area to watch is how cavalier will Keller Christ be? How confident will he be in taking shots downfield? And will Arizona try to capitalize on those on those opportunities as well? Yeah, and this is a Stanford team that has turned the ball over a lot. They've turned it over 16 times on the year and have only forced, seven, or forced eight turnovers, rather. So... Part of that, I think, is fumble luck. Stanford has somehow had absolutely horrific luck with fumbles. They have recovered one opponent's fumble all season long, which is kind of mind-boggling. And yeah, you, that's you, crazy. You can even think back to some of those times where like, that you've seen fumbles by the other team. You remember against Washington, I believe it was, that punt that the guy dropped and had to sprint back to scoop up? You know, These are potential game-changing plays, and so maybe there's a little bad luck there, but... Arizona has forced only one more turnover than Stanford has this season. They've only forced nine. I think that's huge for this Stanford team. They can't turn the ball over. You saw it against Colorado. It cost them the game. I mean, you have first and goal at about the four-and-a-half-yard line, knowing that you need a touchdown in that scenario. Even as this Stanford offense is currently set up, I would feel decently confident about them getting four-and-a-half yards in four plays. Because I think you got to know that's four-down territory there. Yeah, and Shaw said that on the first and goal where they fumbled, he said he saw two guys open on that pass play they called. That's what that's what he says. I I, I trust his judgment. He's a football coach. He he called the play. So so you don't even have to think four downs into the future. If according to Shaw, if Stanford gets that snap off, they score a touchdown. That's what he says. So yeah, to your point, no uh, no doubt about it. Yeah, I mean you, you just can't you can't turn the ball over like they have. I mean we saw that. Turnovers are kind of always the problem. That's you know you can say that about any offense. Even Stanford's last year, the reason they lost to Oregon, partially the defense couldn't get stops, but the offense had two fumbled snap exchanges. Without those, Stanford walks out of that game with a win and is headed to the national championship. I mean, they're always going to be the problem, but they've been a huge problem for Stanford this year, and they've almost cost them a couple other games as well. And they can limit that. They absolutely have a very good chance at winning this game. If not, who knows? Yeah. And one last thing that I do want to touch about that before we get to our hot takes and predictions is the time that this game is starting is 8 o'clock at night. Last week, Stanford kicked off at noon. That's, I think, pretty much as big a switch as you can get from one game to the other from noon to 8 o'clock. Do you think that's going to screw them up at all? I mean, I don't know how it would screw the offense up any more than it has been, but this is kind of their first true night game of the season. They've had those early evening kind of games where they've been on national TV. This one is a little bit later. Do you think that becomes any problem for Stanford? That's a good question. I I think the noon kickoff made more of a, a big difference in this one because the, the, the guys practice from 4 to 7 every day, so an 8 p.m. kickoff is not too far away removed from that. It's going to be nice, too, not having to play in the Arizona Heat, which is a big bonus, having that late kickoff. I asked Shaw the same question before the Colorado game. Like This was their first early kickoff in a couple of seasons. Would it take time for the bodies to adjust? And he said, yeah, it probably will because of the fact that it changes your routine. Instead of you know having a whole day ahead of you and getting a couple meals in, you really have just one crack at it, getting some food in, and then going out there and warming up, and you have to get up a lot earlier. So... I just feel like with the with Stanford's schedule now, with the fact that they p- practice in the late afternoon, early evening, and just the general college student schedule, I think the late kickoff won't be too much of a problem. I'm sure I'm sure Shaw is annoyed by it because he says that they try to get back into work Sunday afternoon to prepare for the next week. Ooh. So the later your game ends on Saturday, the less off time you have for yourself Sunday morning. So. I'm sure he's not happy about it, but I think the players, my inclination would be to guess that they would prefer this 8 p.m. kickoff to a to a noon kickoff. But they won't get to enjoy that reprieve for too long because Oregon State just announced 12.30 p.m. kickoff the following Saturday. So back back to uh, the early days. I don't know if you remember, Nikki, but I feel like first my first couple of years here, I feel like every home game kicked off at 12.30 p.m. And then all of a sudden last season to the detriment of Christian McCaffrey's Heisman campaign, every game kicked off at 7 p.m. in the night. So 
Now I think we're trending back towards that way, but the unfortunate part might be because Stanford has no longer no longer has the has the cachet to pull that that late night primetime slot on the West Coast. Yeah, unfortunately there aren't as many eyes tuned into Stanford now. So let's get to our hot takes and predictions. Vihan, I'll explain the saga of our Arizona broadcast as you come up with these ideas. So as Vihan alluded to earlier, uh, initially when I reached out to Arizona to let them know that we would like to come, we'd like to broadcast, I was told that they didn't have a booth for us. Uh, they had one booth for their student radio that even their student radio lost if there was a national radio broadcast in the game. And their student radio just didn't broadcast the game. So all they could offer us was a spot in the southwest corner of the field. So we were we were preparing as if we were going to be on the corner of the field, you know, all sideline reporters basically trying to decipher what the heck was going on on the field. That was not an ideal situation, but recently that has changed. I got an email the other day from the SID informing me that because of conflicts, the Arizona student radio would not be calling the game, and because Stanford is not particularly good this year, there will be no national radio at this game, which means that instead of being on the field in the heat of the night, although it would probably, it's supposed to be in like the 70s at the nighttime, so it would actually be pretty nice, we will have our own booth, so we will be treated extremely well and we are very very thankful looking forward to that i was preparing to try and do play-by-play off the jumbotron and not really looking forward to it it would have been a cool experience but i think pretty much any day of the week we'll take a spot up above on the field whether it's in the press box or on the roof or anywhere over a spot on the field where you can't really see what's going on that's great news i'm I'm happy to hear that yeah you yeah yeah cool experience does not always correlate to great radio broadcast <laughs> so i think for the for the sake of listeners out there i think this will be this will be this will be outstanding all right let's get into it hot take for this game all right, I'll, I'll, i will i will be brief we've had we have had many bryce love hot takes this season mm. i am going to give you another one i think this is the game where they they let the bear out of the cage in bryce love i think he well maybe it's sympathy for only giving him three touches last game or the fact that this offense is now working more towards accentuating their playmakers i say two touchdowns and 100 yards all-purpose yards for bryce love in this one i think stanford's offense is not going to be great but i think they come alive a little bit with led by i think some some explosive plays from bryce love who still despite stanford's offensive struggles has always been i think one or two shoestring tackles away from really breaking one loose i think his fortunes turn a little bit he gets a couple big plays and being slightly better than abysmal is good enough for the stanford offense with what the defense has so i'm gonna take stanford 20 arizona 17 in this one I think it'll be a similar sort of tenor to that Notre Dame game where it's a defensive masterpiece and the offense does just enough to string along a victory for Stanford. That's what I'm feeling right now. I like it. So my hot take is what I would have done last week. We all got way too busy to actually do a podcast last week. No disrespect to you, Colorado. Vihan, you pointed out that we also didn't do one last year before the Colorado game. Buffs, we swear that's not because of you. You just happen to play us at the times when we all get busy. But the one that I wanted to throw out last week and I think stays for the entire season is that the most important player on this Stanford team is Quentin Meeks. He's not the best player, but if Stanford cannot afford to lose one player, it's Showtime QM. It's not Christian McCaffrey. It's not even Solomon Thomas, who is the best player on this defense. It's not whoever's playing quarterback for them right now. Quentin Meeks is the most important player on this team. You saw it when he returned against Notre Dame. He changes what they can do. And especially without Elijah Holder, that just accentuates this even more. The drop-off from him to Frank Buncombe is pretty big. Not because Buncombe is bad, but because I think Meeks is that good of a cornerback. He can play single-man coverage on the outside against the other team's top receiver, and that just opens up what Stanford can do. They kind of got almost an extra man. They have to worry a little less about safety help to his side of the field. That means they can send an extra rusher. We saw they got great pressure against Colorado. Or they can drop another guy into coverage and have a linebacker filling the middle or have another safety back deep. So I think he is the most important player on the field for Stanford. I also think think that shows up this week against Arizona. We saw a 10-5 score last week, so I think we're going to see something not at all footballish this week. I'm going to go Stanford 16, Arizona 12 in the desert on Saturday night at 8 p.m. Pacific time. That is when it'll kick off. 
You should read all of the coverage leading up to that game on the Stanford Daily website. They've got a lot of good stuff. Vihan mentioned he talked to the Arizona Beat reporters. You can see that. You can see predictions. You can make predictions of your own and see if you do better than us, which probably wouldn't take much given how we're doing so far this year on predictions. <laughs> it would not take much at all. <laughs> And then, of course, when the game gets here, 7 p.m. pregame show. There's a lot to talk about there. You'll hear what Michael and Pedro and RJ all have to say about that. And then 8 p.m., KZSU 90.1 FM in the Bay Area or online at kzsu.stanford.edu. Thanks for listening to another edition of the Stanford Football Insiders Show.